So it is a joy to be here and to open the Word of God with you. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Ephesians. We're going to start there, but we're going to go into multiple passages as you open the Bible to Ephesians. I think as you look around the world today, everybody tries to define and redefine themselves constantly. You think about the shorts on YouTube communicated something about the people making those shorts, or the 280 characters on Twitter, or the Instagram stories, or the TikTok videos, or the pictures that people filter so carefully, right, and Photoshop so carefully that they post on Facebook or anywhere else online, or the people that engage in protests. They're trying to identify with a cause or project a picture of themselves to the watching world, that isn't always accurate. And I think people tend to identify themselves with one of three categories. Through our accomplishments, through our affiliations, or through our assets. Right? What we've accomplished, who we know, or who is um, in our life. Well, let me give you an example. I go to John MacArthur's church. What is that? It's an affiliation, right? It makes you feel better about yourself that you go to John MacArthur's church. We want you here. Somebody stood up earlier and said, John MacArthur is local. I'm from Inglewood. Thank you for being here for six months. We want you here. But even that statement indicates that I've, I'm trying to kind of identify myself with someone or with something or what I've done or what I, where the school I went to and so on, right? So a career becomes a big deal. Think about the first question we typically ask of a person we just met. What do you do? Again, it's an identification question. How can I think about you as I get to know you better? What's your career? Or perhaps what's your alma mater? Go Bruins. It's all about Bruins today, right? They beat Stanford strongly last night, if you watch the football game. So oftentimes, the world projects a picture that it wants people to think that they're special. And I think Christians fall into the same quicksand. And we spiral out of control at times, trying to identify ourselves with certain other individuals or certain accomplishments. When you look at the New Testament, look at the, the Apostle Paul, for example. He thought that way at a certain point in his life. In Philippians chapter 3, he says this, being a pre-Christian Paul. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So you can hear Paul reflecting on his identity before Christ through the category of career. This is what I've accomplished. Or the category of his ethnicity. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. Or from his experiences. I persecuted the church. This is how zealous I was in my activity, in my accomplishments. But when you begin to look at the life of Paul after he met Christ, he doesn't talk about how many churches he planted. He doesn't talk about how many people he knows as if this is, he knows as if this is an accomplishment in his life. He stopped talking about his education being the top student of one of the two most famous rabbis in the ancient world. See, Paul's identity was redirected. It went away from accomplishments or assets or affiliations to Christ. 
Now, today, we often tell people that we're Christians, right? That's a positive statement. I'm not criticizing that. But you need to understand that in the New Testament, the word Christian only appears three times. And it appears in a negative context each of those times. It's the enemies of Christ who called Christ followers Christians. Christians did not identify themselves as Christians until much, much later. I'm not saying that was a wrong shift. I'm just saying that's the New Testament environment. But there is a phrase that is used consistently about 100 times in the New Testament that is an identifying marker. And it is the phrase union with Christ. In Christ is the idea that Paul repeats over and over in the New Testament, or in the Lord, or in Him, or through Him, or into Him, or with Him. All of those have the same connotation. That is to say, my identity is wrapped up in Christ. Now, thereby, I am a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. It was the idea of an insult. Oh, you're a Christ follower. I belong to this group. There were people who worked in the household of the emperor, Caesar, and they were called Caesarites, you could say that. And so depending on where you belonged in the social strata of the ancient world, you would identify yourself that way. And so there was an insult to call somebody a Christian, but Christians saw themselves, rightly so, in in union with Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because our assets will change in life. You'll have more money or you have less money. Your affiliations will change. Your accomplishments will change. You might go through a bankruptcy. Or you may not accomplish as much as you thought you would accomplish when you're 20, and at 50 you're reflecting on 30 years and you're wondering, what happened? And in those times when we identify ourselves with one of those three categories, it could drive us to fear, anxiety, depression, frustration with ourselves, because our identity begins to be rooted in something, not someone. I think that is why the New Testament makes it such a prominent idea that we identify ourselves in Christ. We are united to Christ. And this was understood by many theologians throughout history. Today is going to be a topical message. We're going to start in Ephesians. We're going to go all over the place in the New Testament. I'll give you eight points about what it means to be in union with Christ. But let me present to you the importance of this doctrine in church history. One theologian said, union with Christ summarizes the entire Christian existence. A.W. Pink said, the subject of spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and the most blessed of any that is set forth in sacred scriptures. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, This is what makes us Christians. Apart from this, we are not in the Christian position at all. The doctrine is so glorious and great that it includes the whole of the Christian life. He further said, We are undoubtedly face-to-face with one of the greatest and most marvelous of all the Christian doctrines, one of the most glorious beyond any question at all. Another said, Union is the hub of of all doctrines. The rest of the doctrines are like spokes connected in place by this single doctrine. Another man said, union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Indeed, the whole process of salvation has its origin in one phase of union with Christ, 
and salvation has in view the realization of other phases of union with Christ. That is to say, it underlines every doctrine of redemption. That's a big statement from an individual who wrote about 400 pages on this one idea, union with Christ. And so for someone to say, a theologian who spent years, if not decades, studying this idea to say this undergirds every element of redemption is a massive statement, which means we as Christians should pay attention to how that can impact our lives every single day. And so as we look at this doctrine, I'd like to start in Ephesians 2. In verse 4, Paul the Apostle writes in this very famous paragraph in the New Testament about our depravity, our death in sin. And then in verse 4, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, or some of the earliest New Testament manuscripts that we have access to actually say, in Christ. And the earlier it is, the more credible the manuscript most likely is. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He may show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Five times in those few verses, Paul focuses on our union with Christ with different prepositions, but the meaning is the same. We are linked up with Christ. And so as we look at this doctrine, let me say first, it is an eternal union. That's the first of eight aspects about our union with Christ. It is an eternal union. Not only does this little paragraph say that everything that we're going to experience forever and ever in the ages to come, verse 7, the whole point of God showing us riches of His grace, it is through Christ. In other words, Jesus is the conduit of all the graces and the blessings that we will receive forever and ever from God. But the eternal aspect of this union takes us back to chapter 1, verse 4. So in Ephesians 1, verse 4, Paul writes, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to Himself. So this relationship between the believer and Christ in God's plan began in eternity past. Therefore, it's an eternal union. We cannot think of our redemption apart from thinking about it in reference to Christ, ever. It is always tied back to Christ in eternity past. God the Father never thought about you in separation from Christ. You've always been linked up with Christ from eternity past. Of course, accomplished through election. Another theologian said this, the perspective of God's people isn't narrow. It is broad. It is long. It is confined. It's not confined, rather, to space and time. It has the expanse of eternity. Its orbit has two foci, 
One, the electing love of God the Father in the councils of eternity. That's Ephesians 1.4. The other, foci, glorification with Christ in the manifestation of His glory. The former has no beginning. The latter has no end. So that's his focus on God always thinking of us in eternity past into eternity future as paired up with Christ. We have always been relationally tied to Jesus even before you were born and when you die. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 and verses 16, Paul is trying to comfort the Thessalonians who thought that they were left behind. And that Jesus came, and so they're left behind. And he comforts them with this phrase that, no, even the dead in Christ will be resurrected when Jesus comes back. So even in death, there's a connection to Christ. Do you see that element? So we cannot ever think about ourselves, whether we're alive or dead, apart from Christ. That's the eternal union of our union with Christ. The second aspect is that it is a living union. It is a living union. Now, we just talked about the eternal component of that union with Christ. But at some point, it becomes activated in our lives when we become humans, right? And so what is that activation point? Well, I would say in God's plan, it's an eternal union, but in our lives, it's a a living union at the point of regeneration. Because pre-Christ, we live for ourselves. We commit sins. We pursue our own lusts and desires. And then once God breathes new life into you, spiritual life, you realize that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness. And so we repent. We turn away from our sins. And we begin to follow Christ. Now this relationship becomes the living union with Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit sparks new life in us. That's John chapter 3. You know that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. You have to be born from above. You have to be born again. And so God is the one who infuses life to you. We read that in Ephesians chapter 4. God made us alive with him. That's verse 5 of chapter 2. So now it becomes a living union. And because of that, Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul begins to apply this imagery of burial and resurrection to make sure that the Christian understands that I have died to my past. I have died to my former pursuits, to my lusts, to my sins. And I've been resurrected with Christ. Today is a special Sunday because in the morning we have communion. At night we have a mega baptism service, we're calling it. 22 people are going to get baptized. I'm doing eight of them. We'll see how fast I can dunk them. <laughs> I know you're going to be leaving by 7.30 no matter what happens. But both of those, communion and baptism, symbolize this truth. Our union with Christ. And so Paul says, think of yourself as being dead to sin, dead to yourself, and resurrected with Christ. That's the image of baptism. And so in the New Testament, because of this reality of the living union, it gives us metaphors that focus on life. The body metaphor, for example. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, when Paul speaks about the church and the relationships within the church, 
and that everybody has been given a gift and we're supposed to use it to edify one another. The pastors, the teachers, the apostles, the evangelists in verse 11 are equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. As we mature in verses 13 through 16, we, we move towards this mature man, the fullness of Christ in verse 13. In verse 15 and 16, everybody's growing up towards the head, Christ. The whole body is being fitted together in verse 16. Every joint, every part is working together, causing the growth to the building up of itself in love to the maturity of Christ. That's the image that is presented in Ephesians chapter 4 in the first part of the chapter. It's this body imagery. In other words, it's a living organism. We're united to the church because we've been saved by Christ. We're united to Christ and now we are connected to one another. 1 Corinthians 12 has similar imagery. So in other words, just like the body is alive and all of the members, whether it's a finger or an eye or an ear or the head or the foot or the arm, whatever part of the body we may be thinking about, it is attached to the whole. And the whole works together. It's a living metaphor trying to symbolize our union with one another because of our union with Christ. You think about that marriage image, right? Jesus Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. Well, that's a reflection of marriage. Ephesians 5, the next chapter, when Paul starts talking about the husband's role, the wife's role. Then in chapter 6, he goes into the children's role. But in chapter 5, verses 22 on down to the end of the chapter, he talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And we often go to this chapter at weddings to kind of challenge the bride and the groom about their expectations. I did this yesterday. I officiated a wedding here yesterday afternoon, and I went to Ephesians 5. That's proper. There's very clear, specific expectations laid out. But look at verse... 532. This mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So the metaphor of the husband and the wife is intended to ultimately draw you back to your mysterious relationship with Christ as part of the church. It's a living relationship, just as a relationship between a husband and a wife is a living dynamic relationship relationship consider the vine and the branches imagery in john 15 i'm the vine you are the branches that's a living metaphor isn't it because the branches that are not attached to the vine are dying and they don't produce and ultimately it says they will be cut off and tossed and then burnt so again there's life that's expected in that relationship between the vine and the branches and jesus is the vine We are the branches. Or even the temple building metaphor. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about the relationship that we have with one another because of Christ. And in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, he says, We have come to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone. In verse 8, it's become a stone of offense. And so as Peter tries to explain 
the church dynamic, the holy priesthood. Christ becomes the cornerstone. We come to him as to a living stone. So even this idea of a building being built up, Peter makes it a living dynamic metaphor. In other words, when we think about our life, because of our relationship to Christ, because of our union with Christ, when we think about our life in the church, it has to be a living relationship, an understanding that we are alive because of Christ. And we function within the church only because Christ's life flows through us. And I hope that becomes very clear as you think about yourself in reference to Christ. So our union with Christ is an eternal union. It's a living union. Thirdly, it's a spiritual union. It is a spiritual union. That takes us to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. This is what Paul writes. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So now the identifying mark of an individual who is alive in Christ or dead Even he or she may profess to be connected to Christ. But the identifying mark is the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You have the spirit of Christ. So now it's a spiritual union. What does that mean? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 17, it makes it very, very practical. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So it's a very direct statement. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. It's a spiritual relationship. And therefore, verse 18, flee immorality. The implication being you drag Christ with you everywhere. You're united with him, spiritually speaking. Now, this is a mystery. Paul said that in Ephesians 5.32. He'll say it again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. That this is a mystery that we can't fully explain. So, in Colossians 1.27, he says this. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's this mystery in Ephesians 5 of the relationship between the church and Christ. But now there's the mystery in verse 27 of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now there's also a different implication for mystery. The fact that the Gentiles have been grafted in to God's people. That's also a mystery. That's the previous couple of verses. But in verse 27, it's specific. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, he's writing to Gentiles in Colossae. And so Paul is saying the fact that we have Christ abiding with us, dwelling in us, as he says in Romans 8, is a mystery. It's a spiritual union 
that we need to understand. The implication of that is what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. In other words, there's no separation between the Christian and Christ. Now, in that chapter, John 14, he then goes on to explain that the Spirit will come. And he will be here. Jesus will be physically away from the disciples. But the Spirit, the next comforter, or the, another comforter, as he's called in John, will come and perform the same work in the lives of the disciples and, of course, in us. That's why Jesus is able to say in his final words to the disciples in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always. Remember that statement? You're supposed to go and make disciples, but I'm with you in that endeavor. I'm not going to leave you alone. Or Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we have the presence of Christ because of the presence of the Holy Spirit with us all the time. And it is a mystery how all that works. Now, the fourth aspect of being united with Christ is it is a personal union. It is a personal union. Back in Colossians 1, verse 28, Paul now begins to define his life, his mission. And so he says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete, or you could also translate that as mature, in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. So now we have the power of Christ working within us as we devote our lives to present every man complete in Christ, mature in Christ. And you can see in verse 28, he says, every man, every man, every man. The focus is on the individual. That's the personal element. We don't see masses as much as we see individuals. And we see souls that are being transformed and then conformed into the image of Christ. And Paul says, this is what I'm devoting my life to. Him we proclaim in order to help people understand their personal union with Christ. But it also helps us to see that we begin to transform our self-understanding from something that I do to who I am. And it becomes an identity marker. This is who I am. I am united with Christ and certainly that impacts my decisions and it impacts my mission in this life. We are so personally united to Christ that in Colossians 3.3, Paul says this, You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, When Christ, who is our life. So now Paul can't even talk about living, existing, apart from finding that life in Christ. And it being hidden in Christ. It certainly takes us to one of the most famous statements that Paul made. That is also a self-understanding statement. Galatians 2.20. Many of you have memorized it, I'm sure. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So now Paul says, my life is over. I've been crucified 
And the life I live now daily, every second of every day until I see Jesus face to face, it's his life in me. And it's hidden with him. And again, it's a mystery. That's why we can keep saying the same statements over and over and over, read the same verses over and over and over. But ultimately, we have to recognize it is a mystical, mysterious relationship with Jesus Christ because he's God. And so we have this union that binds us to him forever. Even John 17, when it begins to define eternal life, it says what? This is eternal life. It doesn't say to exist forever. No, this is eternal life. And I see Eli whispering. That they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent, right? Jesus Christ is the only true God. So you have this idea that now even eternal life is about a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Even that has to really refocus our understanding of what it means to be in heaven forever and ever and ever. It's not, I would say this way, our primary desire for heaven shouldn't be to live forever. It should be to know God because that is the definition of eternal life. Which is why we have eternal life here and now today. Because we have the knowledge of God now. And it only exponentially increases. And then it gets free from all the sin that hinders our knowledge of God in this life. And once we get to heaven, all that sin is gone. And now it exponentially grows. And you have to understand this. And I hope it gives you a headache as it gives me a headache. We will never exhaustively know God. You can't know an infinite being. But that's eternity. And the longer and the deeper you think about it, the bigger headache you'll get. But that's the mystery. And it is a personal union. Christ in us. Our life in Him. But as I already alluded to it, it is a corporate union. It's not just you and Christ. It's everybody here. It's the true believers of all time in human history who believed in the coming Messiah before the cross or those who now believe that the Messiah did come as we look back to the cross. Every single genuine believer is now in this corporate union with Christ. We've been grafted in. We're in a community and it is founded and shaped and directed by our head, Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians 4, when we talk about receiving the blessings in chapter 2, but then in chapter 4, being united together. In verse 4, he says this, There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. So now we are united to this entity. We serve the one God. We have one spirit. We believe in the same baptism and the same faith. We serve the same Lord. And then he says, but to each one. So he goes from the corporate metaphor in verses 4 through 7 and shifts, I'm sorry, verses 4 through 6 and shifts in verse 7 to the individuals being a part of that corporate entity. Because everybody has been given a gift and now we're using those gifts to edify the saints. And if you consider Jesus' final prayer in John 17, one of the foci of his prayer in verse 11, for example, John 17, 11. He says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. 
and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, that's the corporate element we're talking about, as we are one. So now the aspiration for unity has a standard, and the standard is the Trinity. And then you look at verse 21, that they may be one, all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. There's a lot going on in those three verses. Not just the standard of unity, but the glory that we experience as a derivative of the glory from Christ. And beyond that, he says, the love that you have given me, you have extended to them as you've loved me, verse 23. So remember, all of these blessings are tied to our relationship with Christ. And so for us to understand, how do we actually engage one another in this corporate organism called the church? We need to look to the Trinity as it functions. It loves one another. Each member of the Trinity loves loves one another. Unified in the same purpose, the same mission. That becomes our standard. And then Jesus says, Glory follows. John 12, 26, again, talks about the Father will honor the one who follows me, the one who serves me, and I will give him eternal life. Jesus was so committed to informing us, and I would say integrating us into this relationship with God the Father, that in John 15, after he talks about the vine and the branches imagery, in verse 15 he says this, in the middle of the verse, I've called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So now Jesus is extending the knowledge that he had about the Father, that was his mission, to make the Father known. John 1.18, John 17, he says, I've made the Father known to you. But he says this, I haven't withheld anything. I've communicated to you truth about the Father. And that should impact your life because in verse 16, immediately he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So now, we, now we've got this implication for an eternal election statement. I chose you now. Here, of course, I chose you, and I think it has dual meaning here from eternity past, but also to be my disciples to fulfill the next phrase and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. You would be productive. And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So now Jesus is committed to making sure that we are working together. He's going to give us the knowledge that we need about the Father to accomplish those tasks. And whatever you ask, verse 16, in my name of the Father, he will give to you. So there's now support that's extended to us because of Christ. This is why we make such a big deal about church membership, about being committed to a local church, whether it's this one or another one, where you can not just attend but serve because you have a gift and you're supposed to use it to edify the saints because you're part of this corporate living entity whose head is Christ, his life flows through us, and we serve and fulfill his mission on this earth that he entrusted to us after he departed. 
But that naturally takes us to the fact that it is also a productive union. So it's a corporate union, and it's a productive union. And the idea there is that we are not passively enjoying church. We are actively producing fruit to the glory of God the Father. Back in John 15, the vine and the branches imagery, it's a living union, I already mentioned that. And he says, Christ does, that if you're not bearing fruit, that branch will be taken away in verse 2. And the Father is the one who is actively working in your life to prune you so that you would be even more fruitful. But if you're not fruitful, in verse 6, you will be thrown away and you will dry up and then you will be burned at the end of verse 6. But the calling and the expectation is in verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and that is how you prove that you are my disciple. So again, participation in this corporate union, the church, with Christ, demands that we are productive. And that is how we prove that we are genuine followers of Christ. Ephesians 2.10, we've looked at that passage multiple times, but that paragraph in verse 10 ends in this way. We have been created for good works that we would walk in them. So the moving from death to life, being resurrected in Christ, being seated in the heavenlies, the ultimate goal of all that is that you would be productive for the kingdom of God. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Phil Johnson has a fantastic sermon on that one verse. You should look it up on the website. But this is what the verse says. This magnum opus chapter on the resurrection ends in this way. Therefore, because we believe in the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So the conclusion to this doctrine of resurrection is get to work and be abounding in the work of the Lord. In Titus chapter 3, Paul really features good works over and over and over, but just a couple of verses. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, engage or be a leader, is more literally the meaning here, in good works. Back in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, be zealous for good work. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, be ready for good works or every good work. How come? Well, back in Romans chapter 7, Verse 4, therefore, my brothers, Romans 7, 4, also you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another, to him. So we're talking about union with Christ. Hopefully that's clear so far. Who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. It doesn't say in order that you also would be resurrected like he was. No, that's true, and that's in other passages. We just looked at that. But do you see how simple Paul makes it? And we know chapter 7. It's all about the struggle that the believer has with his sin. But he says, this is the beginning point. You die to the law to be joined with Christ. You're in union with Christ so that you would bear fruit for God. That's the productive union that is expected of every single believer. And don't think that you have to do it alone. 
Because in John chapter 4, I love this story. Right? Jesus is meeting with a Samaritan woman. Lots of social implications from that because she was kind of a social outcast, being a Samaritan, being a woman, and then being divorced multiple times. And then living with a man who wasn't her husband. And then the disciples go away to buy some food. And they come back because Jesus said, I'm hungry, get me some food. And so they come back and look at what happens in verse 34, John 4, 34. Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Now, that's not literal because he just said there's four more months. So he wasn't saying look around you. He's now talking about a spiritual fruit that's in front of them, the Samaritans. Already, this is the corporate element, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Do you see the beauty of that simple statement? There are people who are working before you arrived on the scene. And you get to enter into their labor and participate alongside them. And then you will continue the labor and then somebody else will come along. And you will work with that person and continue the labor. And the labor being salvation of the Samaritans in this case. Jesus is referring to John the Baptist because that's the focus of chapter 3. He's referring to the Samaritan woman because she's at the center of this story. And of course, the story ends with her telling her whole village, I found the Messiah. He's the one, isn't he? So Jesus is encouraging his disciples, get to work corporately. Because it's a corporate responsibility for every single believer to do his part. Now, as we think about our union with Christ, and I already said John 15, right? You prove that you're the disciples of Jesus if you produce. But Jesus said something similar of himself. Back in John chapter 10, in verse 38, he's dialoguing with his enemies, the Jewish opposition. They're doubting his claim that he's God. He takes them back to the Old Testament to Psalm 82, to try to make a case that, no, I am God. But granted, verse 37, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. John 10, 37, fine. You are not willing to accept the argument from Scripture? Then look at what I'm doing. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, verse 37, don't believe me, but verse 38, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. That's union. So now Jesus, to prove his own union with the Father, didn't just repeat the same thing over and over and over. I and the Father are on. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. That's John 10, 30. Now he said, fine, if you don't believe that declaration, then look at what I'm doing. Look at my productive life. For the Father, which proves that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. So I just want to make sure that we as Christians recognize why there's such a call to ministry for every believer. I'm not talking about everybody, a missionary, a pastor. 
I am saying that everybody has been given a gift, and you'll be rewarded for faithfully using that gift. But also to you and to others, hearing now, it proves that you are His. Well, that takes us from a productive union to a sanctifying union. It is a sanctifying union, our union with Christ. When Peter talks about the battle with the flesh in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he presents the lusts which wage war against the soul. So it's this death match. That's the imagery that should come to mind. It's a war. When Paul talks about the struggle with the flesh in 1 Corinthians 9, he makes it a boxing match. Again, violent, aggressive, hostile. When Jesus talks about the war with the flesh in Matthew, he says, amputate your arm, gouge out your eye if it causes you to stumble. So it's this graphic, violent imagery of separating yourself from sin at all costs. But there's another perspective. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I already alluded to that, but chapter 6 in verse 13. 1 Corinthians 6.13, Paul writes, Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And verse 17 is what I read earlier. Because the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So one of the motivations for holiness should be the recognition that I'm united to Christ. And he's with me on my business trip when I'm alone in a hotel. And he's with me when I'm alone in my bed. And he's with me when I'm at home with my family. He's with me always. And that understanding of his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, all of those are true statements about God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit. But the focus here is the fact that Jesus is always with you. You have been united to Christ. And the context of 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20 is sanctification. Therefore, it's a sanctifying union. It is so sanctifying that in John chapter 13, I know I keep taking you back to John, but I'm not sure what to do. It's Jesus' fault. He keeps talking about this. Back in John 13, you know the story. Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. He shows up before Peter. He's kneeling down. He wants to wash his feet. Peter essentially says, never will you wash my feet. It's a sign of respect. This is insane. What is happening in this room? That's Peter's, I think, motivation is proper. A, a Lord should never wash the feet of his subjects. That's the idea there. It's never happened in ancient literature other than John 13. And so his reaction is appropriate. This is not appropriate socially. So you're not going to touch my dirty feet. And Jesus' response in verse 8 is interesting. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me. That's the same language that's used in Ephesians 4. We're connected to Christ. 
We're part of the living organism, the church. Each part working together, connected to the head, becoming like the head. And Jesus continues. Verse 9, Peter responds rather in verse 9, Lord, then I really want to have a part with you. I want to be united with you. I don't want to be separated from you. Then let's go all the way. Wash my feet and my hands and my head. Jesus says to him, hold up. Too much work for me. (laughs) Verse 10, the one who's bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Speaking of Judas. So in other words, there's this implication that some of you are justified. You have been sanctified positionally. But you live life and you sin. And you need to be washed from that sin through the process of sanctification. And so what Jesus is saying, my relationship with you, you having a part in me, is directly connected to the sanctifying effort that I'm doing in your life. That's the spiritual meaning behind that image. Jesus is the one washing. Jesus is the one washing us by the word, through scripture. John 17 makes a big deal about that. So all I'm saying is it's a sanctifying union that we have with Christ as he continues to make us like himself. And finally, it is a glorious union. And that is a reference to the resurrection. It is a glorious union. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, but now Christ has been Rather, Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then fast forwarding to the end of the chapter, verse 51, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all be fall asleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the future reality of us being resurrected, us being glorified with Christ. That was Paul's ambition in chapter 3 of Philippians after he talks about his self-identification in what he accomplished, where he studied, where, who, he was, who he belonged to, what tribe. You know, that's the beginning of chapter 3. But at the end of all this, this is all loss for the sake of Christ. I'm counting everything as rubbish in verse 8. So I may gain him having a righteousness derived not from the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So I may know him in verse 10 and the power of his resurrection. Verse 11, in order to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So now there's this aspiration and movement towards the resurrection that we will experience with Jesus Christ. That's Romans 6. We will be resurrected with Him. Romans 8, we will be glorified with Him. And the transformation in that direction takes place 
regularly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, We all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So we look into Scripture to see the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So our transformation to Christ-likeness, that's the point of 2 Corinthians 3.18, is happening as we gaze into the glory of Christ. But the final moment of that transformation into the likeness of Christ happens in the moment of either rapture or you die and then Christ resurrects you. That's the final shift and the final transfer that takes place. That's what 1 John 3 talks about. So it is a glorious union with Christ that ultimately climaxes in our resurrection with Him. So as you think about yourself, as you define yourself through what you've accomplished or who you know or what you own, I'm going to encourage you to shift away from that mindset. And for the rest of your life, remember, it's about who you are in Christ. It's not about what you've done. Because ultimately, this is what Arthur W. Pink says, and it's the closing words to this study. What an astonishing thing it is that there should be a union between the Son of God and the worms of earth. Infinitely more so that if the king of Great Britain had married the poorest and the humblest woman in his realm. How immeasurable is the distance between the creator and the creature, between deity and mortal man? How wonderful beyond words that sinful wretches should be made one with him before whom the seraphim veil their faces and cry, holy, holy, holy. And we have been united with Christ from eternity past to eternity future. And let's have that shape the rest of our existence until we see him face to face. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to freely come to worship you, to be able to sing to you and express our love for you through song, to participate in communion in just a little while, and to reflect on our union with you. Jesus, we thank you for the death on the cross that you accomplished for us. And I do pray that every single person here would recognize their sin and run to their Savior, you alone. We know that you will forgive and you will bless and then you will transform each of us into your own likeness. We thank you, Jesus, for your glorious work in our lives and the union that we have with you. Amen.